You are listening to a 14-week teaching series from Jubilee Church entitled Acts. Luke, the author of Acts, tells us in chapter 1, verse 1, that the Gospels were only the beginning of all Jesus did and taught. The book of Acts is the continuation of Jesus' ministry on earth through the church, and this story is continuing today. This sermon series will address key themes in the book of Acts and connect them with our lives today. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. We, we are in this series in Acts, and what we're wanting to take a look at is we're wanting to take a look at the movement, or really the mission of Jesus, um, uh, through his local church, and, and, and kind of look at the historic roots of how the church started, what made it so electrifying, what made it so effective, and how can we live out that potential uh, today and now. And in the first week, we learned that this core mission of the church, uh, set out by Jesus himself, he was very clear. He said, this is the mission. This is what the church needs to rally around, organize around, be about. This is it. I want you to be my witnesses. We are, we are to reflect. We are to be witnesses of Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, uh, Samaria, the ends of the earth. But as we've gone through these eight chapters, uh, despite all the amazing things that have happened, I mean, there are just thousands being added. Uh, community is off the charts. Generosity is off the charts. They're still in Jerusalem, right? They haven't, they ha- they're not living out completely um, what Jesus had said. I mean, now it did happen because, you know, we're the ends of the earth. I mean, we're here. And so it, it eventually happened, but it hadn't happened yet, even though they had done some pretty cool stuff. They've not gone to the ends of the earth, but, it, but in chapter 8, it, it switches. They, they, they start with uh, Samaria, and what started that was persecution. Um, last week, hearing about Stephen and, and the first martyr, because up to that point, I mean, they were threatened. They may have spent the night in jail, but no one yet had died, and now uh, Stephen had died, and that kind of broke loose persecution in chapter 8. And, and it says that because of this persecution, the church scatters. So all the church in Jerusalem, they, they, they just go. They, they scatter off. And one of those who scattered was this guy named Philip. And he started in Samaria, and he preaches, and it's like revival. I mean, it's Billy Graham revival. Thousands of people um, get saved and added and and. It's kind of like the same story all over again. As we've been reading through the book of Acts, one of the things we've always seen, regardless of what they did, uh, it's like a, a community that just couldn't lose. You know, if they did a good thing, you know, thousands of people got added. If they did something not so good, thousands of pe- people just kept getting added and added and added. And now Philip, once again, uh, he preaches in Samaria and thousands get added. And in verse 25, it says the spirit comes and takes him away. Uh, verse 26, I should say, and takes him at, wants to take him to a different place. And so when I'm thinking, you know, reading the, the scriptures, I'm thinking, well, there must be some bigger crowd. So if thousands are getting added and the Spirit's like, hey, I've got to interrupt this. I've got to stop crowds and crowds here in Samaria. Then he's going to take Philip somewhere else where there's going to even be bigger crowds, except that he takes them to the desert where there, there isn't anyone. You know, there's sand. Uh, in fact, it says that uh, if you read kind of the background of what's the time of day there is probably noon. It's hot. Um, he doesn't even know why he's going to the desert. But what, what ends up happening is he, the, the Holy Spirit of God sends him to the desert for one individual. 
And, and there's a couple things I want to say. Today is really simple. But one of the simple things I want to say is that God, God died for the world. God died for crowds. He wants a big family. He wants lots and lots of people to be included. But he also, he also wants you. Um, he's after you. It's like a heat-sinking missile. And he's, it's guided towards you. And he uses the Holy Spirit. He uses situations uh, to get you, to go after you. Very specific. I think it's an amazing part about God because when we think about crowds, like, hey, you know, when we think about we, we're busy and, and life's busy and we got all this stuff and how can we think about an individual when there's thousands to think about? Well, God can. God can think about the big crowds and the numbers, but he, he, he hasn't lost sight of you. In fact, one of my favorite verses in the Bible alludes to this in 2 Samuel 14. Uh, 14. We have this on the, the screen for you. We all must die. That's not why it's my favorite. Uh, but it is cool here. It says, we all must die. I love this analogy. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. So if you drop a potato chip on the floor, you can pick it up. And within five seconds, you can still eat it. But if you drop a lick, if you drop a, um, a, a, a water or, or beverage, whatever, you know, your conscience will let you drink. When that falls on the ground, you can't pick it back up again. It's gone. It's, it's, it's over. And, uh, you know, some people think that. It, it just feels like, you know, life, the rhythm of life is you, you get the best, you know, out of you, you get the best out of the 80-year window that you got, but then when it's over, it's over. It's like water spilt on the ground, and then it's gone, except the story doesn't end there. Because check out what it says next. It says, but God. I mean, it, that's a refrain in Scripture. When you, when you find that in the Bible, underline it because there's something good happening. Ephesians uh, 2, uh, verses 1 through 3 starts out, you know, we were dead in our sins. We were dominated by the devil. We were dominated by the world. We were dominated by our own sinful flesh. And we were goners, but God, he raises up with Christ. And this one says, but God will not take away life. He devises means. He, he uh, other translations, it says that he devises many ways, there's many pathways, there's many avenues, and he's devising ways for a reason, so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. And here's what God does. God, we, we can all come up here, those of us who are on this side of salvation, we can all come up here and we'll all have a story. It will it'll all have the same conclusion, but how we got there is just different. It's, it's, it, there may be some similarities, but it's different because God devises ways. God is very interested. God is very interested in connecting with every individual on the face of the earth. The Bible says that he desires that none perish. In that word none in the Greek means none, like zero, nada. He wants none to perish. But he wants all to come. He devises ways so the ones who are banished, the ones who feel like they're on the outside can find their way in. And that's one of the things I really love about this passage. Because we're talking about some big themes in Acts. But I don't, I don't want to miss that God changes individuals. He changes cities. He changes uh, communities. And he, he does amazing things, miracles. But he loves the individual. And he particularly seems to work overtime for those who feel like an outcast. And this Ethiopian eunuch felt like an outcast, no doubt about it. Well, first of all, he was a black African. Um, 
not necessarily in Ethiopia, our, our Ethiopia, probably more like Southern Sudan, what we would call Nubia today, in that, but in that region, but a black African. Secondly, he was a eunuch. He was castrated. And this was a common practice back then. If you wanted to be a part of uh, the, the administration, the leadership of the government, but you weren't a part of the royal line, meaning you weren't family, uh, the price to get into that was castration. So it's, he was like the CFO uh, of, his, of this country at the time. And, you know, he goes, applies for the job. And they're like, hey, can you count? Yeah, I can count. Uh, do you work hard? Yeah, I work hard. Will you work long hours? Yeah, I'll work long hours. Will you be castrated? I'm going to have to get back to you on that one. Um, but he paid that price. He gave up the idea of having a family, which was everything back then. We'll get into that later. But so he was sexually altered. Thirdly, he was, uh, the Ethiopian region was more than a thousand miles from Jerusalem in this area he was in. So that was considered like that was a very edge of society. That was the ends of the earth. So he would have been considered a barbarian. And so here you have this guy who's racially different, socioeconomically different, culturally different, sexually altered, and he's encountered with someone who couldn't be more different. This is a middle-class Jewish man um, who was given to uh, him and his family to worship in the temple, in the Jewish temple. In fact, one of the other things about being a eunuch is according to uh, Deuteronomy uh, 23, uh, there are a lot of things that could have banished you from being a part of the community of God. Uh, there were temporary things. I mean, uh, you could touch a dead body, for example, uh, which I know is, happens to us, you know, at least twice a day. And uh, that, that would, could get you temporarily excluded from the temple. But there are some things that if you did, you were permanently banished. One of those things was being a eunuch. And so here's a guy who is completely, I don't know if you, maybe, maybe you're here today and you think, you, you don't know what I've done, Brian, and you don't know where my history is. I feel like that I'm excluded. Like there's, you know, God forgives a lot of people, but he doesn't forgive people like me. The Bible straight up says about a eunuch that you are excluded permanently. Now, we'll get to the good news later. But so this Jewish men, by the way, they, they would uh, wake up every day and pray this prayer. Oh, Lord, I thank you that you did not make me a woman, a slave, or Gentile. How you like them apples? <laughs> Jesus, our Jews were told that they were not to participate with anyone who was outside of their race, outside of their, of their little system that they had together. In fact, this was one of the reasons, if you ever wondered why the Jews hated the Samaritans so much, they hated, hated the Samaritans more than they hated the Gentiles who were outside of the Jewish race, but Samaritans were made up, were half-breeds, where they were half-Jewish and half-Gentile. And so they were despised even more because some of their own did the unthinkable. And this is who God, he uses this Jewish man to reach this eunuch. The Holy Spirit was, had to be so direct. I want you to go to the desert. And he obeyed. I want you to run alongside that chariot. And he didn't even know why. I mean, he couldn't, he couldn't see what was going on. 
So it, it says in verse 26, the angel put him on the road and the spirit tells him to run up to the chariot. It wasn't until verse, excuse me, verse 29 says that, verse 31, that's when the chariot stops. So this chariot's moving along and this is, he's like running along. He's like, hey, I see you reading the Bible. And the conversation starts. This is an improbable, this is divine intervention. This is, this is God really, really, really wanting to meet an individual. It's amazing. Some of you here today, well, I believe why you're here today. You're wondering why you're here today. I believe it's divine intervention. You think, well, I'm different. I, I'm not the kind of person who goes to church. I, I, I don't have the, the pedigree. I don't have the, I'm not the right race. I'm not the right age. I'm not the right, um, I, I, my actions are different. Um, culturally different, religiously different, sexually different. I want you to know that God, his spirit is absolutely after you. He devises ways so that the banished ones will not remain an outcast. And this is just all a big divine setup. You, you've, you got here by chance, you think it's chance. God's in it. God's in it. One of the major themes of Acts actually is that the Holy Spirit almost has to force people to get outside their comfort zones. I mean, in, I didn't, we didn't go over this very extensively. I just kind of mentioned it this morning. But in, in um, Acts 8, you know, persecution had to happen. The Holy Spirit was behind that. Holy Spirit leads them out of the desert, forcing the issue, trying to push us as Christians to get outside of our comfort zone. And it's hard to get outside your comfort zone because it's comfortable. It's a zone of comfort. It's a comfort zone. But the Holy Spirit is working. For those who have felt excluded, I just want you to know it's not God who's excluded you. I want you to see how passionate he is in this story. I hope that you see how zealous he is, not just in this script, scripture, but all throughout the Bible. He's zealous to reach people, especially those who feel excluded. It seems as though he works overtime to make sure that those people are, uh, they do feel apart. Now, we as human beings, we, we do exclude people. Uh, I'm not proud to say that in my own even though I'm aware of what the Bible has to say, I'm aware of Jesus, I'm aware of the gospel. I've not always been as nearly as inclusive as the Bible says, but as I begin to read the Bible and begin to understand the, the rhythm of the Spirit, what does it mean to be one who walks in the Spirit? One of it is that you, you don't exclude. In fact, the Bible points in places like it does in Ephesians that it actually grieves the heart of God that we would put up any kind of wall or barrier between uh, myself and another human being to align our hearts with Christ, to align our will with Christ, to align our actions with Christ means to be someone who um, is willing to go outside of our comfort zones to see that all people come to know Jesus because hear the voice of the Spirit in this text. Philip, run up to that racially different, sexually altered man that you would normally have nothing to do with. That's the language of the Spirit. That's the trajectory of the Spirit. It was true then. It's true today. One of the questions I want to ask my Christian friends, I know not everyone here is a Christian, but my Christian friends, are you aligned with that Spirit? Have you taken the time? Have you done the difficult work, the diff difficult 
heart work to say, am I aligned with that? Can I hear that spirit speak to me? Am I willing to obey that spirit? I think this text clearly says that Christianity doesn't belong to one um, group or another. I mean, Christianity did start with one race, the Jews. Uh, But I already mentioned that then it went to the Samaritans and now to this black African in chapter 10. If you read on in Actual, it gets to uh, the Gentiles and then to the Greeks and to the Romans and then to Asia and then to Turkey. And uh, this may shock you uh, because this is outside of conventional wisdom. This is outside what the pundits would say about Christianity. uh, Because while Christianity is considered very narrow-minded and intolerant, it is, uh, when you look at the actual data and, and where Christian is thriving, it is the most inclusive religion uh, by far than, than any other uh, way of thinking, including uh, secularism that loves to talk about tolerance, that loves to talk about inclusiveness. Uh, and, and, and here's what I mean by that, because if you go into any university, what they'll say is they'll say that all a religion is an extension of culture. And, and what I mean by that is that is that, you know, every culture, you know, they, they have a way of doing things and every culture creates a religion to help them answer the questions that they have of life. And so everyone has a different way of coping with suffering or everyone has a way of coping with what happens in this life and the next life. And, you know, there's all different kinds of ways and they're all valid. But basically, it doesn't matter what religion you have because it's all made up and it's just an extension of one culture. And there's actually a lot of evidence Uh, that they have to back that up. And what I mean by that is um, mostly what you'll see is that uh, you take the major religions of the world, uh, the the, the largest concentration of of their adherents, their population, is basically where that religion got started. For example, 96% of Muslims live in the Middle East, Northern Africa, or South Asia regions where it originated. Uh, 88% of Buddhists live in East Asia where it originated. 98% of Hindus live in India or South Asia. Um, But Christianity is absolutely different than that. And you, you won't get this on the news, but 25% of Christians live in Central South America. 23% live in Africa. 14% of all Christians are in Asia, but that number is rapidly increasing. 25% live in Europe, but only 11% of the global population of Christians live in North America. And ironically, less than 1% of Christians live in the Middle East where the thing originated. Empirically, Christianity is the most... Um, culturally inclusive religion on the face of the earth, including uh, among secular humanists, which basically are, you know, white people from North America and Europe. Um, so you've got the situation to where Christianity, when you look at the way things are now, but then you also look in the scriptures that within a few months of its beginning, so Jesus says, hey, look, this, he, he, he makes this declaration. His, his address to them as he's leaving is, I want you to be my witnesses, and I want you to know that this is going to be an inclusive, a radically inclusive thing. It's Jerusalem, it's, it's Judea, it's Samaria, it's the people you hate, the people you detest, and it's the end of the earth. It's those that are outside of your tribe, not just outside of your tribe, but outside of your understanding. And as Christianity 
humanity has moved on. That's how it's played out. It played out with just in a few months. The Spirit had to move. The Spirit had to press. It had to push. It had to direct. But it happened. It happened in Samaria. It happened to this African. It happened, and it moves on in Acts. And on and on it goes. It went into all these different countries, and it's moving that way today. I mean, when it landed in different parts of the world. So when it landed in Africa about 100 years ago, very few people were Christian. And within 100 years, 50%. That's the same thing that happened in America. It's happened in, in Europe. It's happened all over the world. Christianity is this radically, radically inclusive. Um, I, I, I think it's, you, you, I mean, the data suggests it is the most inclusive in, uh, that, that, that's out there. Now, while it is the most inclusive, it, it is also the most exclusive, which is helpful. It's helpful to understand this, to understand the heart of God and how you become a Christian. You, you, I, I really want you to know the inclusive nature of God, that he died for the world and his spirit is on the move demonstrating that. But it is exclusive. Now, I don't need to spend a lot of time here to help you to understand that the Bible says some pretty exclusive things. I mean, I could talk all day about being in inclusive and, 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 and that's what we love. I mean, you just say inclusive. It just make, gives you a warm feeling. It's just like all the way to your toes. It just, inclusive is just, it's a great thing to say. We don't like to talk about exclusive, but it's, if you take out the exclusive nature of what the gospel says, you strip it of its beauty, you strip it of its power. And what do I mean by that? Well, what did Philip do? Philip asked a question. Um, he says, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? We'll get back to that. And he invited Philip to come up with, seat, to sit with him. And then he begins to explain this passage, which is Isaiah 53, about Jesus. Now what Peter, or excuse me, what Philip didn't do is when the guy asked a question, hey, can you help me understand what this means? He didn't say, well, you have to figure that out for yourself. You, you know, you, you gotta find, you know, he, he asked, is he talking about, is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? He didn't say, well, you know, whatever you would want it to mean, it, it could, that, if that's whatever makes sense to you. So he gives this very narrow thing, you know, he says it's all about Jesus. Life is about Jesus. The only thing that's good in this world is Jesus. It starts with him. It ends with him. And for you to be saved, you must come to Jesus. He's very, very exclusive in what he says. And look how the story ends. The story ends with him being converted, with him being baptized. That's what baptism is. Baptism is I, I've died to this old life and I'm believing in living this new life. I was once like this and now I'm a completely different person. My old life is dead. It's gone. It's different. And I'm a completely new person. He gets converted. There is no multiple multiple ways that you can find the truth and reality because that's not even what Jesus said. Jesus, when he came, he said some very exclusive things because what you'll get out of any other thought, um, kind of popular uh, thought out there today is, you know, you know, there's many different paths. So, you know, you've, you know, Hindus or, the, you know, they, they have their path and, um, you know, the, um, you know, Islam, they've got their five pillars and there's all these different ways uh, to get uh, to God and, uh, you, you know, you got you to choose for yourself. And that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, um, hey, look, 
I'm not just someone who's going to show you the truth. I am the truth. I'm not going to show you the way. I am the way. I'm not going to point to ultimate reality. I am ultimate reality. There's no path that you can take to find me and make it. In fact, you didn't seek me. I sought you. If I never came to you, if I never found you, you would have died on the side of that mountain. But I've come to you. And if you receive me, you can have what your heart desires. But some people say, well, isn't, can't you just, isn't being sincere enough? You know, if, as long as you're sincere. I mean, this guy, if anyone's sincere, it's this Ethiopian eunuch. I mean, he was a thousand miles um, from home. He, he traveled more than a thousand miles, one way to get there. Now, two years ago, my, I took my family um, in our van uh, to Yellowstone. It's more than a thousand miles away. I mean, we did the whole Griswold thing and we, we drove those two days and it almost, it, it, it was horrible. I mean, it was just, we traveled through some of the most boring parts of our country. Nebraska almost broke me. And, uh, but we, we were driving 70 miles an hour and this guy's in a chariot. And it's a difficult path. And it probably meant risking his job. I mean, this is a high profile job. I mean, you take, you leave your job for a year. What are the chances someone's going to come in and take your place? He was very, very sincere. He had a copy. He had a copy of Isaiah. Now, we've got Bibles coming out everywhere. I mean, whether you're a Christian or not, you probably have a few on your shelf. Uh, you got it on your phone. You've got it on your iPad. You've got it on your lap. You've got it underneath your chair. I mean, their Bibles are attacking you. But you cannot, you could not get uh, you could not get a written copy. I mean, to get a written copy of the scriptures was extremely difficult, especially from a man, you know, from Ethiopia. He had to pay a dear, dear price for those copy of that scriptures. That was a very rare thing. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say this guy was pretty serious about finding God. But Philip didn't say, hey man, you're, man, if I had 10 people like you in my church, woo. He didn't say that. He didn't say, man, well, he didn't even say well done on your zeal and well done on, you know, man, you're doing so well. You mean, man, your zeal is just so impressive to God. You've got to surrender to Jesus. On one hand, Christianity is this massively inclusive thing. It's the mo- by far more inclusive than anything else. Easy, hands down. Holy- Jesus said it. Holy Spirit proves it. You and I are at some level witnesses of that as well. But yet, it is the most exclusive in what it says. That you must be converted. If you're here today, man, and you're searching... And you're here, I mean, you're, you're, you're making the effort. You're, you're, you're trying, you're seeking, you're, you're wanting, there's an emptiness in you. There's something that you're, you're unsatisfied with. I just want you to know that being here is not enough. Making the effort is not enough. Being sincere is not enough. You will never be good enough. You could never try hard enough.
But the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to. The good news of the gospel is Jesus sees you. He knows that you are, you've done some things that have excluded you, that you've been in places, you've experienced things. He sees you in your pain. He sees you in your weakness. He sees you in your uniqueness. He sees you in your exclusion. In light, a heat-sinking missile, he's got the spirit and he's after you. But you have to respond to him. You have to walk through. You have to come to him. You have to receive him. You've got to turn, you, you've got to turn from the life you've lived and turn to Jesus and receive him. It's very wide open and yet very narrow at the same time. It's a paradox, but it's true. So why should you become a Christian? Why did this eunuch become a Christian? Because he was ready. Let me explain that. I, I don't know if you guys do the whole apple picking thing, um, whether you go to Eckert's or wherever, you know, um, pick apples. We've, we've got an apple tree in our backyard um, actually, it's her neighbor's yard, but, you know, same thing, you know? And so <laughs> it, it drapes over the fence. It drapes over into our yard. And uh, our kids, you know, apple, you know, there's green apples. This is a, this, I think, I, there's a question I have about apples. And that is, they, they're, they're, they all start green, but some end up green, and, but some end up red. And it seems like it sh- there should be a different color that they all turn into so you can know better what they are. My kids, they don't understand the seasons, and so they picked the apples, and, and I can't remember which one it was, but someone bit into one, and it was not pleasant. It was sour. And uh, now, though, they're turning. Yesterday, we found out they are, in fact, red apples. They're not green apples. They are turning into that red color. But now is they're, they're ripe. Now is the time to pick them. Now is the time. And I just want to speak to those of us who are Christians. I mean, some of us have tried evangelism and we've, you know, we've done the relational thing, which is, you know, one of the big, our big evangelistic strategy is to, is to befriend those who don't know Jesus. And, um, but there, there's a process. Jesus talks about uh, that the, this process we go through is, is kind of agricultural. There's a harvest, there's a season the, that, that people go through and, and there's a process that people go through and, and that's one of the reasons why it's like if you're, if, you, if you're not a Christian here and you're not ripe yet, maybe you're not ready, we want this to be a safe place where you can, you can be in this environment and you can learn about who Jesus is. And, we all, cause we, and we're very chill about that because we know that we can't change you. We can't say convert. We can't say behave this way and do this way and then you're whammo, you're done. We can't, we, I can't make you a Christian no more than I can make an apple ripe. It's an internal work of, of God. But what we can do as Christians, we can, we can discern, we can, we can be aware, we can have our ears open to what the Spirit is doing in people's lives, just like with Philip. And there's a time where people are, they become ripe. And we, there's, there's a harvest that needs to happen. And maybe you in the past, like I've tried evangelism. Every time I tried evangelism, it, you know, it's like biting it in an apple that's not ripe. It's like, oh, I don't ever want to do that again. Well, it's, it's also understanding that, that, that people go through that process. 
and that you don't have to make a Christian. You, you don't have to worry about that. But we do need to be aware. And I, I, this has been convicting in my own life because I, I'm, I've kind of on the side where it's like, hey, let's do relational evangelism and let's get to know people. And, and, that, and that's a part of it. Sometimes it's just like, I just have to be ready like Philip and say, hey, there's someone here right in front of me who's ripe. Am I bold enough to say something? You know, maybe you don't even get all that much, all that many words out. You know, you're just there and it's just like, hey, do you want to know about Jesus? I got a bus to catch. Are you in? Are you out? Like, is this, you know, what do you want to do with this? And, um, but on the other side, if you're not a Christian, God, God has brought you through a process that maybe you're not even aware of. And how do you know that you're ripe? Well, you're, you're, I think you're ripe when you begin to understand that there is a, this inner longing in you, that there's, um, there's a searching inside of you. There's a, uh, how do I say it, uh, an emptiness. Because this guy had given everything. I mean, maybe you can relate to this. He, he gave everything to his career, literally. He did everything, I mean, he just, everything was that. He gave up, he gave, he gave up, the hope of a family and um, you know it, this, this is one of those things you know sometimes you say you know, what's the impartable sin well he, he did something to where or something happened to him that banished him from, from being a part of the church forever but he still was like I, I still gotta go after it maybe you're like that maybe you feel like well I've done some things that have excluded me I've been places I've experienced things Things have happened to me. I've done things to someone else. God can't forgive that. God absolutely can forgive that. And he wants to. It's why you're here. How do you, and if you're, you know that you're ripe if there's this hunger in you that's wanting to go after this. But I want you to know that your searching is not enough. And maybe there's even this desire to like, well, I've got to make up for lost time. You'll never make up for lost time. You'll only dig yourself in a deeper hole. But Jesus extends himself and he, uh, he comes to us and, and he says to those who are lepers, I, I, he, on the cross, he became a leper for us. For those who are outcast, he became an outcast. And to those who were uh, eunuchs, he became a eunuch. He, he became what excluded us. I mean, he's reading Isaiah 53 and it, it's in this section called about the suffering servant. And, you know, he only mentions these verses in Isaiah 53, but most certainly he had to read Isaiah 56, which says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let no one say that I'm not a part of this, that I'm excluded. Even speaks directly to the eunuch. He says, And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. Wait a minute, you just said earlier on that, you know, if I'm a eunuch, I'm excluded. And Philip's like, well, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you what Jesus has come on the scene to do. He's come on to take your place. He was excluded so that you don't have to be excluded. On the cross, he cried out, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? And on the cross, he was forsaken so that you won't be forsaken. There is this great exchange. And now it says, I will give in my house and within my walls to the eunuch a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name. It's, what's Jesus do? He makes all your wrongs right. 
And he says that to everyone. He, is, he, has, this exclusive, he has this inclusive appeal to anyone, any and everyone. I want you to know about the exclusiveness of Jesus, but I, I also want you to know because I really want you to experience this change. It is, it's a narrow claim, he says. You must come through Jesus. So as we close here, are you, are you ready to come through Jesus? I mean, aren't you tired of trying? Isn't that exhausting? The guilt that you feel because of things you've done, they just, they haunt you. Or things have been done to you have created even a deeper emptiness than would be there otherwise. Jesus wants to come and, and heal that. Jesus wants to come and give sons and daughters to those who can't bear children. He invites those who have no money to come and to buy food and bread without price. He says to the foreigner, you're included. He says to the excluded ones, you're, you're in. I want to give you a name. I want to give you a monument. I want to give you an identity that will last forever because it's, it's me that you'll have. You'll be in me. You'll have me for your identity. Do you see that Jesus has invited you in? I hope that you've seen that this morning and I hope that you see the way. You see the inclusive nature of it, but you also see the exclusiveness of it. But it's seeing both that you really experience the power and the beauty of what it means to be in Christ.